Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What a heights of love, what depths of peace, which fears are still, which striving sees. talk with you about embracing the greatest reality. Every day, as a born-again believer, we are touched with this reality. We can embrace it, we can declare it, we can be transformed by it, we can be empowered because of it, uh, we can be motivated because of it, we can connect and be refreshed because of it. The greatest reality that at some point each one of us has made that declaration. We understand that reality or we wouldn't be in this very place today. We wouldn't have a, 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 an enormous amount of faith to believe without this reality. The greatest reality is declared in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus and the disciples were in conversation and Jesus asked a very important question that each of us have to answer at some point in their life. Heaven doesn't depend on your answer, but the heaven that is, it is given to you does depend on that answer. And yet in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 16, it says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But you, he asked, who do you say that I am? 
And Peter answered him, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Simon Peter answered, and he gave the right answer, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock, he says, I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. It's a great declaration of faith. It is a great reality that each of us connect with that transform who, transforms who we are. And Jesus led the disciples to a mountain of Caesarea Philippi in the region that had the pagan temple Pan where the gate of Hades spewed and steamed from the rocking cliffs. Yet from this strategic location, Jesus declared the foundation of the church and described its formation as a battle with the gates of Hades opposing the gospel's advance. Every person must declare an allegiance. An allegiance to Christ or an allegiance to the gates of Hades? Will you remain loyal to the Son of the living God throughout your lifetime? Or will you be seduced by the pleasures that this world offers? You see, at a critical point in Jesus' public ministry, the Lord Jesus led the disciples on an unusual departure to the northern region of Caesarea Philippi. And yet, like a modern-day resort, this city offered beauty, it offered relaxation, it offered pleasures. Located 150 miles from Jerusalem, Caesarea Philippi was so far removed theologically, morally, and socially from any strict Jewish beliefs that the disciples had. It was a real physical location that wasn't... Br you know, inborn within that city to rise up disciples of Christ. Each disciple must have felt like a fish out of water being where Jesus brought them. They would have been shocked to learn that they were going to a city that is considered the forbidden city. The closest comparison would be if we decided to have a deacon's meeting in Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> you know, Sin City as it's called. And yet, Caesarea Philippi is located at the enjoyment of two rivers. Melting snow from Mount Hermon provides water plunging through those, those rocks and those cliffs, giving the city such a majestic view and presence. The area is surrounded by lots of vegetation where you could find mulberries, fig trees, grapevines. Visitors would spend days admiring at the beauty and the scenery of Caesarea Philippi. But Caesarea Philippi also had a dark side. It was a place where pagan worship, and yet one particular of pagan God that was recognized was the honor of the god Pan. It comes from the original name of that city called Panius. And in honor of Pan, the pagan god of shepherds and flocks they would worship because they depended upon the shepherds and the flocks to provide. 
Herod the Great built a temple there for Caesar worship. After Herod's death in 4 B.C., the son Philip renamed the city Caesarea out of Caesar, Philippi from Philip. That's how Caesarea Philippi came to be named. But like many pagan gods, Pan was famous for all its sexual exploits. It was their attempt to worship the Pan, the god of Pan, and yet to stimulate divine power from this idol so that they could have blessing upon the crops and the herds. That was their mentality. Pan was still considered some pagan, pagan groups that still exist today. Have you ever heard of Wicca? That's where Wicca comes from, the god of male fertility. Many, if not all, the Old Testament false prophets had appeared by the time that, that um, or had disappeared by the time that Jesus had uh, come into his public ministry. Yet the paganism and the polytheism continued to thrive through the Greek and Roman cultures through this first century. For example, the temple of Artemis played a key role in Apostle Paul's ministry in Ephesus. And yet in Athens, he used the shrine of the unknown God as an introduction to a powerful sermon about God's creation and judgment. Now hang with me. We'll get to a point here. The lone surviving fertility God of Pan, whose temple was carved into the cliffs of Caesarea Philippi, an understanding of that physical scenery provides the greater appreciation of what's taken place when Jesus called that place the gates of Hades. Rivers flowing out of the temple caves and the mist from the, the waterfalls created such an eerie presence. And when Jesus declared that the gates of Hades shall not prevail against his church, he and the disciples may have been looking at the pagan temple and listening to the roar of the waterfalls when Jesus asked that question. So you can imagine the impact at that very moment as the king of kings stood in the presence of evil and proclaimed his superiority over the forces of darkness and asked the question, who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, greater than any pagan God that you have placed here in this, uh, that you have allowed to be placed in this place that we're at. You are greater than anything we experience and we may be fearful of. You are the son of the living God. So now it makes sense why Jesus brought them to Caesarea Philippi to emphasize the importance that, that evil is, is not going to prevail and is not going to change the kingdom of God. It's not going to change heaven. It's not going to change anything that God has in place because everything God created is good. Amen. So let's look at this message and try to understand Christ as supreme. Understanding Christ as supreme. This story has more significance than Peter's great confession. In fact, this was not the first great confession 
of, of Christ. We often approach this story as being uh, the first accurately understanding and explanation and declaration of the identity of Christ. But a more likely scenario is that Peter was the last one to grasp it. In fact, the Apostle John shares in his gospel a brief but yet very insightful account of the calling of Nathanael. When Jesus said that he had seen Nathanael under the fig tree, Nathanael declared in front of Christ, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. So that declaration was already made. And on and on you'll find through the Gospels they had declared who Christ is. And finally Peter's light came on and when he asked the question in the midst of that evil presence that was around them as they could see that temple, Peter rose up and said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, and upon that declaration, that's exactly what I am doing I am taking what you have just discovered and everyone else before you and I am going to build my church upon that foundation and nothing shall prevail against it. No evil will prevail against it. One of the keys to applying this passage is allowing the Holy Spirit to search our hearts to help us to understand the answers to the questions. Most people drift from life without seriously considering the most major issue affecting our very existence. Now, for those who think religion's not a part of my life, God's not important to me, I don't necessarily believe in heaven or hell, but the Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess whether on earth or in heaven that Jesus Christ is Lord. The questions that you and I ask all throughout our lifetime is, who am I? Where, why am I here at this place in my life? Who is God to me? What does God require of me? What influences my life greater than anything else, society or a savior? Everyone needs to visit Caesarea Philippi in their soul. It's a place where our spiritual landscape is formed and we face one of the most pressing issues of life and death, of joy or sadness, of hope or not. It is that very place that you and I must discover for ourselves who Christ is and how powerful he is in our life. So understanding Christ is supreme is all about a place of examination. It's all about a place of examination where you and I examine who we are, what we're about, and we examine more importantly who Christ is and what he is calling us to do. And when we begin to find ourselves in the midst of those answers to questions where Christ is Lord of our life, he has given me a challenge, he's given me hope, He's given me a ministry. He's given me a mission. Then we understand that the examination process is to get us not to, to hide from what we're to do, but to cause us to move out to what we are to do. The place of examination. Second of all, 
understanding Christ is supreme, you and I have to understand the, the past failures as well as the future threats. Our past failures as well as the realization of the future threats. Among the scenic beauty of Caesarea Philippi, Jesus confronted the past failure of Israel. But he also confronted the future threats to his kingdom. Israel had failed in many areas of idolatry. More than anything else, that was the greatest temptation that Israel had over and over again. Started with that of Moses in the wilderness when they erected the, the idol, the golden image. And on and on they were confronted with that over and over and over again. We view the Old Testament with, with such a comprehensive advantage that was unavailable to the children of Israel at the time because they were living it. We now look back at it and we're able to discover it and read it. And yet we must remember that the unredeemed are blinded by the evil, by the gates of Hades. And yet many embrace the belief that the system that they see and understand, it's about human satisfaction. It's elevating one's soul to encounter a divine presence. But it's not. When the Israelites entered the promised land, they discovered all of the agricultural challenges. They discovered the herdsmen. They discovered the wilderness. They discovered all that they needed to be. The Canaanites attributed to the land. They had their own religion. They had their own practices. And so Israel had to both cipher through their deity. Who is it? And when Peter makes this confession, it's a reminder to all of us that when we're confronted with what is there in, in society and what is present in our hearts through the heavenly gift of our Father to us. We're confronted with answering that question, who is Christ to me today? And if our past failures indicate some things of the sin of our life, we have to let go of those things. We have to give it to God. Before jumping into an easy condemnation of Israel, of their forsaking God throughout their lives. Consider some contemporary examples. If you inherited a million dollars, would you seek the advice of a financial expert first or would you seek the Lord in prayer to determine what God would have you do with the money? Where do you turn when you receive a bad report from a doctor? If your relationship with your spouse or children needs help, where do you seek advice? Would you listen to Dr. Field or would you search the scriptures? <laughs> I'm not suggesting that we reject medical advice or counselors of any sorts because the Bible is full of there is wisdom in counselors, the many counselors. But we demonstrate the same tendency of Israelites by trusting other sources and turning from God. And Peter's declaration brings us back. You are the center of my life. You are what matters most than anything else. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of the living God in whom I serve this day and I will continue to serve for the rest of my life. And upon this, I understand, is my life, is my destiny. And Jesus says, upon that declaration. Not your faith, Peter. Not your words, Peter. But upon the declaration of who I am, I come from God and I go back to my Father. He has given all things unto me. And he says, I have all authority in heaven and earth. 
And he says, and upon that, I build my church. That's wild, isn't it? Jesus did not take the disciples to Caesarea Philippi for a mystic journey of self-awareness. He took them there because he wanted them to embrace the truth of who he was and to allow his call in their life to produce results for the next generation. So understanding Christ is supreme, it's all about a place of examination. It's about the past failures as well as the future threats. But third of all, it's a place of revelation. At the core of this incredible mountain experience is the revelation of the identity of Jesus and his ministry. Just as there were many opinions about Christ in the first century, numerous opinions even into the 21st century, Jesus is the one and only that we need. Former president of Moody Bible College, Dr. Joseph Stowell, describes the difference is the thought-provoking understanding that people have. And it's so titled a book called The Trouble with Jesus. He said, let's face it, Jesus is exclusive in his claim that he is the only solution to our sin problem and the only way that someone could ever get to the Father and that he is God and there's no other gods before him. Jesus is the central issue that separates you and I from Hinduism, Muslims, Jews, New Age adherents, any other advocate of other religions. Jesus is the one and the only. And so when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he sees the pagan pan God and he sees what's referred to at the base of that Erected God is the description of the gates of Hades. He sees that there's evil, and he knows in his heart that there is only one God. And he said, you are it. You are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So understanding Christ is supreme, not only the examination of our hearts and dealing with the sin of our life as well as the future temptations that come, but third is that place of revelation, and fourth is the identity and the destiny. I listened to a, a young kid yesterday, 20 years old, he's a young man, adult, but he's, he's about this tall, and he's, he's got some uh, disabilities, and he is just remarkable in his faith and how he has taken everything that hit him in life, um, given up for adoption, not knowing his biological mother and father, born in a foreign country, and then be having life given to him here, and just a remarkable young man that stood before us and gave a talk of where he once was and where he is today, his past life, his life of sin, and his life of discovery and freedom that he had in Christ and how he got there. Powerful, just bum-fuzzled all of us. I mean, we were there with 
mouths dropped open as we listened to all of his voice inflections. And when he knew the right time to emphasize something, because his major is public speaking, by the way, and he did a wonderful job. And yet, as I sat there and I listened, he was, he was telling his story about his identity and his destiny. That his identity was now in Christ and his destiny was formed because of Christ and given to him. Christ's identity is, is for us the establishment of, of that mountain-moving faith. Jesus Christ is, is Savior. He is the sustainer of all things. He is the source of our purpose. He is the guidance of our power. And yet his identity firmly established in the minds of the disciples there at Caesarea Philippi stands out and calls for us to identify that same claim. Is he the son of the living God in your life? Genuine understanding of Christ is not knowing the historical facts. It's a lot of head knowledge. We're talking about the conversion of the heart, the deep seed of who we are, the core being of who we are, the inner us. We're talking about the makeup of who we are and God transforming that makeup. And because of that, we learn the same truth, the same identity that is like, like Peter did in flesh and blood who is now identified with the Father of heaven. The Holy Scriptures, God breathed through hearing those Scriptures proclaimed, through personal study, our eyes and our hearts are open to the understanding, the reality, the power and the punch of the Savior. What others think, believe and feel does not determine our identity in Christ. The only accurate revelation of Christ is the spiritual enlightenment that flows through the Holy Scriptures. And that Holy Scripture says, just as Peter said, you are the Christ. You are the Christ of my life. You are the living God who transforms my life. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Powerful for Peter to make that declaration. He represents all the disciples. He represents your life. He represents the time where you come to know Christ and by coming to know Christ, you are proclaiming the same identity that Peter said. You are identifying who Christ is. You understand Jesus is your salvation. Christ promised to build his church. And we're invited to be in that church, the bride of Christ. You know, the symbolism when a bride comes down the aisle is that we all stand in honor of the bride. And if you don't stand, the minister's probably going to say, let us stand. And it's, it's the honor you give to the bride. And usually if you watch me in weddings, that's when I reach over and say something to the bridesmaids or say something to the groom because everybody turns and they look at the bride so we can get some things straight before she gets to the altar. And that's us. We're the bride of Christ. And, and yet, all eyes of the world are on us as we come down the aisle. 
and what we represent, what we identify with, and how we live our life based on our destiny determines if others want to be a part of this bride. The inability of the gates of Hades to prevail against Christ's church illustrates the significance and the superiority of this incredible mission to which you and I as followers of Christ are called to do. Standing in the immediate proximity of the gates of Hades elevates the call to a greater heights than the disciples could have ever considered. They were no longer working to continue the Jewish tradition. Now they're expected to adopt the charge to go into enemy territory and to rescue those who lived in that darkness. That's the mission of the church. That's the place we're called to be. Christ's followers do not battle the Roman Empire. We don't battle the Republicans and Democrats. We don't battle the secularism. We don't battle Islamic faith. We do not battle communism. We are engaged in a cosmic battle of the souls of men and women, boys and girls. The task is not to gather the holy huddles rejoicing. It is to gather people so they can be illuminated because of the light of Christ. And building, the building of the churches are the representation of the souls that have fallen away who are now redeemed. That's what we're about. You're here, not as one who's fallen away, but you're here as the redeemed. And every place that gathers is the people of the redeemed. So we understand that identity and destiny. Now let's continue on in the thoughts of what our mission is about. Think about the swine and think about souls. Is it about swine or is it about souls? Is it about bacon? <laughs> Ooh, sounds good right now. But that's not what we're focusing on. We're focusing on the souls. First century Judaism struggled with the same challenge as the contemporary Christian life does today. Believers can lose the evangelistic fervor. We can lose the evangelistic priority to reach souls because we get consumed with pleasing the saints. American churches ra rarely argue about evangelistic campaigns. Instead, they'll argue more about the color of carpet, the style of music, or the purchase of a church van. Throughout his ministry, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders who had become so self-centered, practicing their rituals instead of pursuing the sick who need a physician. And yet, Jesus' mission is all about destiny. Evading the enemy territory, storming the gates of hell with the transforming power of the gospel. You see, in seeing the loss of the evangelistic focus in churches, I'm reminded of the story of Mark chapter 5. You remember that where Jesus heals a demon-possessed man? And after commanding the demons to leave the man who had experienced the vicious tormenting all through the years, Jesus sends the demons into the swine, into the pigs, the herd. 
The demons caused the pigs to rush off to the cliff and jump off the cliff into the lake below and they drowned. When the people of the town learned the, the miracle as well as the death of the pigs, they pled for Jesus to leave their town. They were more concerned about the swine than they were about the souls. They could not celebrate a soul that had been delivered because they were concerned about the swine. We must constantly guard against the danger of allowing other issues to quench the passion of our souls. So you and I will always be challenged. What's more important, the swine or the souls? And yet understanding the, the, the supreme nature of Christ, sixth of all and last, is the church. The incredible revelation continues to build with intensity, having clarified his identity, having clarified his destiny, Jesus declared his superiority of his church. And notice the church is his church. We, are, we never should forget that the church we belong to is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, because the Son of the living God is building his church and nothing can stop it, Amen. not even the gates of Hades. Months after this encounter took place, Jesus would crush the head of the serpent, as Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 says. The Apostle Paul described the work of the cross as the military campaign that gets the cosmic forces having disarmed the powers and the authorities and the principalities. Christ's authority over the cross, over death, gives forth the truth. He is victor. The church will be successful because Christ is the reigning king who defeats the enemy. So who do you say Christ is? <laughs> that question is a little bit more impactful, isn't it? Who do you say Christ is in your personal life? I watched another young man who has lost his leg through a tragic motorcycle accident take his one leg and hop around a room in joy and praise to Jesus as Lord of his life. So the whole theme of the weekend that I've been on is a bunch of hopping kids for Jesus. Everybody pulling their one leg up and hopping to honor this guy named Max. You know, when Christ takes a hold of our heart and transforms, you know, not only our thinking, but the very being of who we are, that's why Peter was very clear and very quick to answer that you are the Christ. You are Christ to me. You are my Christ. You are the Christ of the world. You are what saved me. You have given me hope. You have given me life. You have changed the person I am. 
You've given me new motivation. You've given me a whole new set of goals. You've helped me to see things that I could never believe I could see. And you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he made that declaration because he knew Christ had transformed his life. That's what the church is about. It's about all the transformers who come together as the redeemed, motivated now to go out and continue the process of transformation and continue to reach out to the unredeemed. And the church grows. Not necessarily our church, we're talking about the church at large, the church, the bride of Christ grows because of that fervor. So who is Christ to you? Who do you say Christ is? I trust that you'll say he is my Lord. He is my friend. He's my provider. But it's not just about my. It's about he is the Christ of the world. He loves all people. He wants all people to come unto him. And so what I think is mine, I need to give it away to others around me. Father God, we thank you that you bless us with the understanding of who Christ is. That you remind us, as Peter says so, so eloquently and graciously and powerfully, who you are, that becomes our statement of belief today. And knowing that we serve in a kingdom that is, that is not affected by human action, that, is, that will remain for eternity in the privilege and the joy that we all share together to be a part of that kingdom's work is awesome. Thank you for the invitation to, to join you at work in this world. Thank you for helping us to see those who are unredeemed as the potential of those who are yet to be redeemed. We thank you for those who call upon you each and every day and those who will be transformed tomorrow. We thank you, God, for your love, your grace, your mercy, and your presence and your power. In your name that we pray, amen. We're going to stand and sing a song, How Beautiful. And today becomes our song of affirmation and our song of commitment as we celebrate together through song. And yet, if you need to bow in, on this altar. It's always open to give you that invitation. I'm here to pray with you as well. Whatever the need is, as we stand and sing in just a moment, may, may we declare through our words, through our song, through our heart that Christ is our living Lord. So let's stand together. Let's sing.